Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Sherlux In Conversation podcast with me, Charlotte Collins. In this episode, we will be discussing eating disorders and exercise addiction. There will be no mentions of specific behaviors or numbers. If you need additional support, please look at Feast, First Steps ED, The Hub of Hope, or ABC. Eating disorders are sadly becoming more common and are one of the most life-threatening mental health conditions out there. According to recent statistics, approximately 1.25 million people in the UK have an eating disorder and cases are on the rise. Yet many taboos still surround eating disorders, meaning support has never been more important. Today we're joined by Hope Virgo, a multi-award winning international advocate for people with eating disorders, and Rini McGregor, the UK's leading sports dietitian specialising in eating disorders, to delve deeper into the issue and provide valuable insights to those who need help, whether you're struggling yourself or are worried about someone you know. Welcome, ladies. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. Not at all. Thank you so much for being here. Um, can we just go straight in? I want to ask you both about your backgrounds and how you got into this. Hope, perhaps you can you can go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, yes, I've been kind of campaigning probably for about four, five years now. Um, so I come at it from a lived experience perspective. So I grew up with anorexia. Um, and ended up being hospitalized when I was about 17, spent a year in treatment and then kind of was in this ongoing state of recovery since then. In about 2016, I did relapse um, and I tried to get support on the NHS, but wasn't able to because I wasn't underweight. And it was kind of when I came through that relapse, I realized that the way that the system currently is set up is just so wrong on so many levels. And that's not a kind of dig at the NHS. It's obviously due to funding. It's kind of an educational issue as well. And so I kind of came through that relapse and just thought, actually, I really, really want to change this and do what I can. Um, So, yeah, it kind of began from there, really. And kind of began quite slowly just kind of talking a little bit more openly about things um, and then kind of set up a couple of groups and then began to work a lot more with the government around kind of funding issues and resourcing issues um, as well. Mm-hmm. And Renee, what is your background? So I started life as a clinical dietitian um, and actually had nothing to do with eating disorders for quite a long time because I actually had my own experience of an eating disorder when I was a teenager and was quite adamant that I didn't really want to work in that field because, again, a bit like Hope, I mean, I'm older than Hope, my experience of the services I received were quite horrific and I guess... I was quite traumatized by quite a lot of that. So I worked in the clinical field for about seven years. And as a dietitian, you do everything. So you start in like kind of a real mixed ward. Like I think my first workload was eight wards, just different sort of specialities. And then you start to specialize, specialize and specialize. And actually, funny enough, the last job I had in the NHS was working in adolescent eating disorders. Um, And it was one of those things I fell into. I was working as a pediatric dietitian we were getting more and more referrals on the general medical ward within the paediatric services. And I seemed to be good at it. I was able to kind of connect with the individuals and really help them to challenge quite a lot of their fears and beliefs around food and body image. But it all got a bit much, if I'm honest. I just felt like I was quite um, absorbed by it and 
again, a bit like Hope's been explaining, when you're working in the NHS, it's intense. Mm -hmm. And we just didn't have the resources and I wasn't able to deliver the services I wanted to deliver for these individuals. Um, and so I actually left the NHS actually moved into sports nutrition. So did a postgraduate qualification in applied sports nutrition, because that's kind of where my area of interest really is. But actually, the more I was in sports nutrition, the more I realized that there was a real problem with eating disorders within the sports world as well. And I guess that kind of brings me up to speed where we are now in that about four years ago, it was post um, Rio. So I went out to the Paralympic Games, came back and just made the decision that nobody was looking after the mental health of athletes generally, but particularly these individuals that were being lost in the system because they were athletes, um, had eating disorders and nobody in the sports world understood it, but equally clinically, they weren't being taken seriously because often their identity of being athletes sort of disguised what was really going on. Um, mm -hmm. So I set myself up as um, a practitioner working in this kind of link between eating disorders and sports nutrition and, um, we've never really been busier sadly wow. um so yeah it's quite it's quite sad and I guess you know Hope and I've met through different ways of like campaigning and I think we're both preaching from the same place and decided that actually we should just collaborate and try and work as much together as we can which is what we do now um which is which has been fantastic there's so much to unpack and there's so many questions I want to ask off the back of that but I feel like we have to start at the beginning so so can we start with the definition of an eating disorder and kind of what exactly we're talking about. I think Hope, when we last met and you touched on this a moment ago, I was so surprised by what you said about people not receiving treatment unless they're severely underweight. So, and I guess that plays into what you're saying as well, Renee. So is there an official definition for, for what that looks like and how do you identify it? Yeah, really good question. Um, and yeah, for those who won't see the video of this, me and Rini are kind of grinning at each other just because we've spent the last couple of weeks kind of going over and over different definitions, trying to work out the best way to define it. Um, yeah, so I guess, so where I think where we're at at the moment um, when it comes to eating disorders is, and I think for me, this is definitely what it was. So it was kind of a coping mechanism to life. Um, so it numbed a lot of emotion. Um, it gave me this sense of value and purpose. Um, and whilst at the time I knew it was serving this purpose in that moment, obviously in the long term, it was really, really dangerous um, and detrimental. I think it is important to remember that eating disorders are probably still one of the most stigmatized illnesses and they don't just present in white teenage emaciated girls but actually they present in all different body sizes they present in all different genders or different races or different backgrounds and something that we do often hear is that people obviously don't get support on the nhs unless they're underweight but we know statistically that actually only six percent of people with an eating disorder are ever underweight that's so right. i think that's it's always really important to remember that eating disorders aren't about the food or the weight or the body image, but they're a really complicated mental illness. Mm. And, and really, how do you begin to identify that? We can talk about identifying it in other people down the line, because obviously there are certain things to look out for, but, but let's talk about, you know, personally at this point, how do you, how do you know if you are, if you're suffering from an eating disorder? It's a really good question. I think as Hope has said, it's, it's a very severe mental illness, but it's a severe mental illness that does have biological consequences. So I think there's, there's aspects of that biology that you may 
tap into first you may notice first and, and you might not but you know like if we're looking at the psychology of it it's that kind of slightly increased anxiety around food it's that need for it to be right I hear that a lot in clinic I need the food to be right it's that kind of um, aspect of becoming quite obsessional about eating at certain times being quite routined, not being able to deviate from your kind of, your, you know, your routine. And, and also, again, I said what I see a lot as well is that kind of gets tied in with the exercise aspect as well. A lot of people are feeling they needed to earn their food. So that's where the exercise aspect comes in, potentially. I mean, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but it, it does tie in. So I guess like you've got those sort of changes and your thought processes may change as well in the sense that you just start to notice you're thinking about food a lot more. Now, one of the things people don't realize is that when you are not providing your food with sufficient energy, so when your energy availability is low for what you need to do, the body has a number of mechanisms that it sort of puts into play to try and prevent that from happening. And one is that you do think about food all the time because you're hungry. And it's, it's a way of your body trying to tell you, I need food, I need food. So you can become quite fixated and you often see it in people, they talk about nothing but food. Um, and it's a, it's a very classic sign or they start cooking lots of meals and but they're not really, not really eating those yeah. meals. It's cyclical, you're, you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And then physically, some of the things that you might notice are like we see everybody is very different. Okay, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that this is not, this is not the route that everybody's going to go down. So if you don't follow this pattern, please don't think you haven't got a problem. But often we'll see things like, particularly in females, their periods might get affected. So I'm not saying they'll stop immediately, but you might notice that there's a change. They get lighter. Maybe they get a bit more erratic. They might get shorter. They may get longer. And then eventually you find that they, they stop. Now, that's a really big sign that something is not right. And it's often the sign that most people come to our clinic with is that something's not right. But actually what that tells us is that estrogen levels are very low and estrogen is so important, not just for reproduction, but also for our bone health. So again, if you have this low estrogen, you're putting yourself at a much higher risk of bone injuries. And again, in athletes, we see this quite a lot. It's like kind of what they come in with is a lot of recurrent injuries, like a lot of repeated injuries. Also, estrogen is so important for our mood and it's often the thing. So we know from the study and the research out there, 63% of people with eating disorders have depression. Wow. That's something that is, do they go hand in hand or is that kind of, you think that's a result of the eating disorder? I think that's the bit that's difficult to ascertain at the moment. I think some people will have a depressive illness that leads into an eating disorder because we know that when we're depressed, we can lose our appetite. And of course, it's that very rapid weight loss or that very kind of restrictive eating that changes the energy availability that will then affect how we think and can lead to an eating disorder. But equally, people who have eating disorders initially, that's their first presentation again that low energy availability that low estrogen level will have an impact on how they think and we know that a low estrogen level tends to be linked with a higher anxiety and a much lower mood and one of the things that I'm pushing for a lot um, it's really really hard but what I'm pushing for a lot is for medical professions to recognize this mm -hmm. um, because we do recognize it in the sports world and the IOC have said quite clearly that people that are suffering from low energy availability and particularly once their menstruation has disappeared should be given hormone replacement not just to protect their bone health and and you know their kind of other biological aspects but also to try and see if 
that little bit of estrogen can actually help with cognitive function, which can then help you back on track. But it's so difficult. We get so much um, resistance from GP practices. Like we, you know, we write to GPs all the time saying, here's the evidence, here's the information, here are the guidelines. But we always get, or no, we'll give them the pill. And, and the pill is not the same as hormone replacement. They're two very different things. And also, I mean, I'm no medical professional, but not all pills are estrogen heavy, right? Exactly. And, and but even with even if you were to give them the combined oral contraceptive pill, which would have estrogen and progesterone in it, you have to remember it's a contraceptive pill. Yeah. So it's there for a reason. It's there to stop your hormones. So actually, how is it going to encourage them? And the thing that, again, GPs say, but it's got the estrogen in there, but it's a synthetic estrogen, which doesn't yeah. have the same effect. And this is why we, the guidelines state it should be what we call a transdermal version of estrogen. So either a gel or a patch, and then you take an oral progesterone alongside it. So in the way that HRT is what, you know, the way you consume that, got you, got you. Um, Hope, how, if you don't mind talking a bit about how your eating disorder manifested for you and how, at what point you identified that you had a problem? Yeah, so for me, it came out in the form of food restriction um, and obsessive exercise. And it lasted, well, I guess initially, the initial phase of it kind of progressed quite quickly over probably like a six month period. Um, But I actually hid it from everyone around me for about four years before anyone kind of realized anything was the matter um, and before anyone kind of reached out and asked what was going on for me. And it was in that four year period where I think I probably had those moments when I was like, something's not quite right. Um, I remember feeling really tired a lot of the time. Um, I was really cold. Um, My hair was falling out quite a bit towards like kind of towards the end of the four years. And I also had these moments when I'd kind of go out with my friends and I'd be so amazed that they could just eat what they wanted to and drink what they wanted to because I just couldn't do it. Mm. But I didn't feel able to accept that I had anything the matter with me actually up until I got admitted to treatment. I think for me, I just was in this constant denial phase. I didn't really feel heard or understood by the clinical team that I was speaking to. And I was kind of just in this constant battle with them, trying to get them to understand where I was coming from, whilst often kind of listening to kind of other perspectives going on around me. Throughout that, I remember throughout actually that kind of six months when I was an outpatient at CAMS before I got admitted to treatment kind of as an inpatient, I spent a lot of my evenings kind of sitting there just wishing that something was going to change in my head. Mm. And I'd kind of tell myself every single one of those evenings that I'm just going to get up tomorrow and something's going to be different. But I'd always get up the next morning. I kind of weigh myself. I'd look in the mirror. I'd kind of pull on my tracksuit bottoms, get downstairs to the kitchen. And my brain just would not let me start to eat. And I think that's the really frustrating thing with eating disorders is when you are so wrapped up in the illness, you feel like you're totally invincible. Mm -hmm. And you just think that what you're doing is amazing and that everything's going to work itself out. And it promises you all of this, this false hope where you're like, oh, if I just lose a little bit more weight, maybe I'll be happier. Maybe everything will be okay. Maybe I'll be good enough. And you kind of hang on to that. And I think part of me probably knew deep down that I was never, ever going to get to that point where I was going to be happy. Mm -hmm. And looking back and actually I do a lot of work in schools now. And what I always say to kids is like, actually, you you think that you're, you're going to be happier when you're skinnier. But actually, I can like categorically say now that when I was at my most kind of unwell, I was my least happy mm-hmm. and was just living so much kind of inwardly, just so stuck in my own head a lot of the time. See, so yeah, I started my kind of treatment process, I guess, accepting that I had 
an eating disorder, probably on my third or fourth day in hospital. Mm. Um, and then kind of spent that year learning a lot more about my eating disorder, learning a lot more about what it was doing. And I think a big thing for me at that point in my recovery was learning a lot about kind of communication and to kind of just learn to say, I'm really struggling today, but I'm still going to eat something. Um, but I think for me, like, I honestly think I've made so many mistakes in my recovery. And sometimes I, it kind of frustrates me, I think, when I think about it sometimes, because it's one of those things, I think, where you kind of settle at these various places along the way. And I know that I definitely had settled. I kind of let myself do some slip ups. Like I still let certain belief systems kind of dominate my thinking and, I think even though I felt like I was in a really good space, I knew probably deep down that I still had a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so actually probably, yeah, at the start of this year, made like a proper commitment to kind of really get to that space where I could be fully recovered. Um, mm -hmm. And I think like I do, I really believe that everyone can fully recover. I think mm -hmm. at the moment, obviously the way services are set up, it's not always easy for people, but I think that it's so important that you hold on to kind of like that end goal and, just know that even though it feels terrifying and scary and just so full of fear, actually on the other side of that fear, there could just be something just so amazing. I think what you said about what you say to school children is really interesting about, you know, skinny doesn't make you happy because that kind of, to me, implies that the root of someone's eating disorder might be a want to be thin, but that's not always the case, right? Really, like, how do you, that's almost, I would have thought, easier to to deal with in a sense if that is you know if it's coming from this you know the peer pressure and the magazines and everything you know everything we always talk about and kind of Instagram culture but for a lot of people it's not coming from something as you know for want of a better word superficial as that is it no I think I think it's really important to appreciate that diet culture Instagram social media the western society has a very big part to play in how we view ourselves mm. so the majority of individuals i'm not going to say youngsters because it can affect you at any stage but the, the majority of individuals seem to have this constant sense of unworthiness you know this constant and, and something i wrote the other day was around the fact that i'm not saying i really don't want to say that social media causes it because it doesn't but it really contributes very very strongly in the sense that because of social media we have this constant feeling of being in competition with each other. So everybody's competing against everybody, it feels like, and you never feel satisfied with your lot. So often what the eating disorder aspect does is, you know, by fixating on food or fixating on your body image or fixating on an achievement from like a sporting point of view, it's a method of attaining worth that you can't attain from within yourself. But you're right, it's not the only reason. Like, you know, like I said, I had an eating disorder when I was a teenager. We didn't have social media when I was a teenager. But it was still a method I found to help me cope, mm. deny, whatever you want to call the words, the emotions and situations that are too, too difficult for me. Both Hope and I, you know, our, our situation started when we were teenagers. And I'm not saying that that's when it starts. But for a lot of people, it does. And one of the things about being a teenager is that it's a really complex time. And it's an area that Hope and I really want to focus on because we know it's a really complex time. The brain is not fully mature. You're then, you know, basically got this influx of information 24 seven that then feeds into that, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. 
and they don't know how to process it. They don't know how to appreciate it or handle it. And it, it's very easy to just make that one distinction that if I was X, then everything would feel better because you see it. We see that we are, we have become a society that is so obsessed with image and there's so much value, not just put on image, but value put on success, value put on achievement. And I think this is what it is. It's not, you know, I, I don't want to keep going on about, about the aesthetic aspect of it because it's not just about that. It's more about how somebody has lost that relationship with self and can't get it back and can't show themselves the self-compassion and the, the self-care and the self-love that is needed to actually survive this world. God, I mean, when you put it like that, it's almost crazy that everybody doesn't suffer in some way, isn't it? Because it's harder and harder to find, isn't it? Yeah. Um, obviously you've mentioned that you know it's it's particularly prevalent in teenagers but but we must kind of acknowledge that that it's it can affect people at any age any stage and also both genders as well it's not unique to women at all is it not at all and I think like you know again I think it's interesting that it's always been seen as a, as a teenage problem probably because actually two decades ago it probably was more of a teenage problem because of the things I've just said that the teenage brain is not fully mature and it is difficult and you are changing so much and you have all these different influences that you don't know how to, mm. to handle and and you know you're right not everybody is going to develop an eating disorder we know there's a very big genetic link to it and we also know that different situations will will ignite that that switch mm. so I think it's important to, to sort of say that you know you do tend to be a certain type of personality that doesn't mean that you're going to definitely get it but you do tend to be a certain type of personality and then certain environments like competitive environments are rife like this is why we see it so much in sport mm. and as you quite rightly said people are getting older like in our clinic we're getting women and men who are struggling in their 30s and 40s coming in is that partly to do with the current climate and, and you know the last year and a half is that presumably that hasn't helped anyone who might be predisposed a hundred percent I mean a big part of an eating disorder is struggling with uncertainty <laughs> nobody likes uncertainty I don't think any of us like uncertainty I don't, I don't I haven't met anybody who likes uncertainty that much um but I think some of us learn how to deal mm. with it we learn how to sit in it and we kind of know well we don't let our brains go to worst case scenario all the time we have seen and and hopefully got the stats but we have seen a significant rise in people suffering with exercise addiction and eating disorders during this pandemic and I would I mean I don't know again I don't know the absolute stats I know that there's a lot of also a lot of emphasis on how it's gone the opposite way as well people have put on weight too but I would say that if you look at something like, it was something like 227 percent increase in admissions so we know it's a big, big problem and uncertainty, you know, if we think back to March 2020, when this all started, I mean, it was like nothing we've ever experienced before. I mean, only individuals who've maybe had experienced like World War Two may have had something similar in that kind of announcement that was made, you know, it was that very sort of eerie mm -hmm this is going to happen now, you cannot leave your house. It was almost like if you left your house, something was going to kill you immediately. Mm. That was a threat level that we were given. A bit like a terrorist threat, you know, in a strange way. So you can imagine, like, we imposed threat, we isolated individuals, we took away routine, and we didn't provide them with any certainty of when this was all going to be over. Like, they're the four most worst things you can do for anybody's mental health. Yeah. And hope, I mean, I, I always assumed, 
that you know lockdowns and everything must be the most terrible thing if you are suffering with any kind of mental health struggles you know whether it's alcoholism whatever it may be addiction you know how does one stay sane in those circumstances what did you do what are your coping mechanisms and I think I guess just to reflect on that I do think as like for people with eating disorders kind of like we know that they really thrive in the uncertainty like Rini said but also in the isolation kind of like the secrecy of things and when um, you say thrive you mean mean the eating disorders thrive yeah the eating disorder thrives yeah and I think what what we did see as well was a lot of these people who probably had unhealthy coping mechanisms before the pandemic and then those were kind of taken away and so what was maybe like a functioning person with an eating disorder was not really able to function um anymore but I think for me I I guess I it was terrifying at the start honestly I'm I'm a freelancer and I lost the majority of my work for the first six months and didn't really know what to do and I basically tried to make sure that I'd get outside once a day kind of get in the sunshine when I could um, I stuck kind of quite strictly to having some sort of structure and routine around kind of work, um, around meal planning, things like that. I also made sure that I would kind of connect with at least one person every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I didn't always want to do that on things like video calls. I, I remember at the start of the pandemic, everyone was like obsessed with kind of Zoom quizzes and house party and stuff like that. But that sort of thing just isn't really me. So I just made sure like I'd kind of ring a friend instead and have that proper kind of one-to-one chat instead. And I think as well, like working out what was making me really anxious. Um, I'm like a real list person. So quite often when I'm feeling really overwhelmed with stuff, I pretty much write every single single thing down in a journal. And then I kind of try and work my way through it, kind of navigating it um, as well. But I, but I also think I'm speaking as someone who's like invested in myself an awful lot and I probably make it sound really easy. And there were some days when it felt really impossible, like days when I kind of got up and I would cry and I'd shout and would just, my mood would just be all over the place. And I think everyone probably had those days. Um, So I think it was about in those moments, trying to just kind of keep myself going, kind of put one step in front of the other. And I think particularly, actually, I remember one of my hardest points was probably actually this time last year, like just before Christmas. I I find Christmas quite a challenging time, um, generally just with family situations and stuff like that. And we kind of had a bit of a plan in place around Christmas. And then obviously living in South London kind of went into tier four and the whole thing got completely stopped. Um, And whilst I think part of me was probably slightly relieved about it, there was obviously a lot of emotion in that. Um, And I remember that evening I just cried and cried and cried and then was texting my best friend and we were like right what are the good things like what are the good things about the pandemic what's been really good this year and I think just taking a lot of time to kind of just yeah gather my thoughts um when life felt really challenging over the last year or so to focus on the positive I want to move on and talk about signs and treatment and all of that but really I feel like I'd be remiss not to ask you about orthorexia because you know that's that's been a big word I mean since before the pandemic how do you, and for those who don't know, that's that's an unhealthy obsession with the health movement, right? And this is clean eating and it's and it's exercise. And, you know, of course, social media goes hand in hand with that as well, doesn't it? But how do you differentiate between anorexia, orthorexia? I mean, perhaps we can just break down a little bit the different types of eating disorders. Sure. So, I mean, to, to be really clear, orthorexia is that obsession with eating purely and eating correctly. That's how you define it. And so you're right, it sort of ties in with that, you know, hashtag eat clean and um, the sort of wellness movement that was, which is still big on, mm. on social media. But there's not a, an obsession necessarily with 
hitting a certain body type. Like exercise does get involved, but it's not to the extreme level that you see in anorexia. Whereas anorexia is an absolute fear to maintain a normal body weight. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of anxiety about being that normal body weight. Whereas it's not so much the case in orthorexia. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of crossovers. There's a lot of kind of, if you kind of, if you did a Venn diagram, you would see that there's, you know, a, a link in the between like the sort of compulsive obsessive aspect of it where like anorexia is quite secretive and um as hope said and kind of i suppose maybe a little bit more this sounds very wrong saying it but it is a little bit more manipulative it is a little bit more deceptive because of the nature of, of what that person's trying to do with orthorexia it's almost the opposite it's very evangelistic it's very look at me what i'm doing it works for me the real fixation on kind of glowing and health um some people it it starts because maybe there's been a sort of some sort of health scare so we see a lot of individuals where maybe a family member has been diagnosed with with some sort of health aspect and suddenly it's a way of them trying to ensure that they don't get the same issues and so they become like they, they try and eat very purely or we see a lot actually um a lot of people who have digestive disorders and they're being told they have ibs mm. and they go on the fodmaps diet which is a very kind of quite an exclusive um exclusion a big exclusion diet and actually if you if you do it properly you're not supposed to be on it for very long you're supposed to be on it for a short period of time and then with um, dietetic monitoring you're supposed to then in introduce foods appropriately and, and back into the system but actually what happens is we've noticed is that that sometimes is the instigator of more orthorexic thinking and orthorexic eating and it's really interesting like i've never heard the word bloat so much um and it's it's become the, the the thing to say, you know, oh, I can't do that it bloats me or I've done that and I feel bloated and then I feel disgusting. And it's interesting because, you know, when you then start to sort of try and separate it all out, you can obviously feel bloated. You can feel bloated and uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean you feel disgusting because you can't feel disgusting. And it's trying to get people to realize that the difference between the words they use. And, and, and that's a big part of eating disorders is, the language that the individual uses with themselves and also the language you use with them to support them yeah. so so you've got anorexia you've got um, orthorexia and then obviously your bulimia which is again the individual generally tends to be a normal weight generally um, and they will have some aspect of purging now that doesn't have to be vomiting although often that's what is recognized um, but it could be exercise so we see a lot of um, athletes with it so sorry an, an over obsessive exercise could still be diagnosed as bulimia yeah although i mean that that is technically what is said in the definition is that it's a sure. way of purging but yeah. i don't think it's picked up that quick that often yeah, yeah, I think of most, mostly people only pick it up if, if they're vomiting yeah so, but it is a way of purging like we said right at the beginning earning your food right punishment right yeah yeah. So I, mean, I guess that's a very brief, but it's kind of the, the three. And then also you still have like binge eating disorder and you have eating disorders not recognized. And, and there's there's kind of lots of different ones. But I guess the, the, the main difference, I'd say, between orthorexia and anorexia is that one tends to be a healthy weight. But what we do see is people fall into each other. So what often we'll find is people with anorexia during recovery will often develop orthorexia because it's still a way of maintaining an element of rules 
and, and make themselves feel this kind of false sense of security. And equally, we see a number of people who start orthorexic and end up anorexic because actually their restrictions and their, their obsessions cause a significant weight loss, which then starts to affect how the brain works. And that then becomes very much anorexic tendencies. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Makes sense. Hey, obviously, you know, this is a massive generalization. There are generally body image issues associated with women. How do you know if you're taking that too far? Yeah, so I think for me, it's when it crosses over into an unhealthy obsession. So something that you're constantly thinking about, something that you're constantly trying to change um, and something that you're probably fixating a lot of your time and energy on. I think, like you said, a lot of people do struggle with their body image, but it's when you start getting all of your self-worth around that. And when the kind of fear of your body changing kind of causes you to then act out in a certain way. So you start controlling your food, you maybe start exercising more or kind of entertaining some of those unhealthy behaviors as well. And then you then stop seeing your friends, stop wanting to go to certain restaurants. And maybe in some situations, you also kind of hide yourself away a little bit more. So to become much more isolated. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of people with eating disorders, they do struggle with their body image. And whilst we know there are kind of intrinsic links in some situations, I think not everyone struggles with their body image, um, Mm. which is really important to remember. And I think what really helped me actually was something that really said a while ago, how a lot of the time, like I know for me now, I project all of my fears and anxieties onto my body. So I probably still in some places get a lot of self-worth from my body, which is too much self-worth from my body, like my body. And Rini will say it better than me, but um, something that really stuck with me actually was when um, she once said to me, actually, your body is the least interesting thing about you. And I, I think it. it's so true that we live in this society where we're so fixated on our bodies and on image generally. But if we're getting too much of our self-worth from our bodies, again, I I would say that's a red flag that maybe something's not quite right. And maybe that's when you need to start taking a little bit of a step back, thinking about different mantras in your heads or kind of trying to break it down a little bit more. Yeah, you've led on to my next question, which was if you think you're kind of on a slippery slope, is that something you can kind of rein back yourself or is it really only with 
professional treatment that you can kind of pull yourself off from the edge in that way yeah I think I think people can rein themselves back in from it I think it's it's really hard um and I think it's even harder with eating disorders because and body image issues obviously because you don't choose to have them but you have to make a decision to kind of get up every single day and battle a lot of that thinking so I know for me when I have days when I struggle with my body I spend a lot of time trying to kind of interrupt that thinking And I think, again, that's the kind of stuff that we should be actually educating young people, but also adults on to actually be like when you're in the shower, if your automatic reaction is to look down at yourself and start to kind of critique your body, maybe instead of looking down at yourself, like try not to look down at yourself. But if you do get that negative thought, immediately come in and actually say something out loud, whether it's, I don't know, like a work thing you've got going on that day or you want to go shopping, which I know sounds so gender stereotypical to say that as an example. And I think in the long run, you want to get to a space where you can compliment yourself and Mm. feel confident in your body. But I think initially, a lot of the time, it's just interrupting the thoughts, kind of having those go-to mantras. Um, And I think also if you with your, even with social media, kind of creating your feed in such a way that actually you're looking at a huge range of bodies, so much diversity, so much kind of people that maybe are inspiring you, kind of people campaigning, people doing different jobs that you like. And actually, if you spend your time looking at all of that sort of stuff instead, then I think, again, it broadens your mind so that you probably feel less triggered by certain situations. Have you done that personally? Yeah, I actually probably change up who I follow probably every two months. Um, And then also do spend, I don't know, 20 minutes every couple of months going through my explore page and making sure that I'm kind of commenting and liking on posts that I want to see flooding that page. I think that algorithm. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's hard, isn't it? Because we know what like Instagram's like with suggesting stuff and whatnot. But I think it's, I do think it's a really basic thing to do. And it isn't about just looking at positive memes, but it's about, like I said, looking at that really varied content, looking at people that are interesting. And I think the more we do that, we can kind of get outside of our heads. Um, And I guess the other thing actually on social media, which I have started being really proactive on is just being very mindful of when I'm looking at it. I think I have this tendency when I've had a really rough day to kind of put something really trashy on the TV and can spend literally hours just scrolling on Instagram, like looking at people's stories, like looking at other people. And whether it's, I don't know, like me making myself feel rubbish about the work that I'm doing or making me feel rubbish about what I look like, I often can find myself down that rabbit hole. And so now I'm very practical actually being like, right, I've had a bad day. I'm just going to put my phone like upstairs or in another room so that I'm not tempted to keep picking it up and scrolling. Yeah, I think that's such good advice. Let's move on and talk about helping people. If you suspect that somebody you know is suffering, what do you do? What are, what are the sensible, proactive first steps? Oh, that's a really, I mean, it's a really, it's a question we get asked so much and it's Mm. a really difficult one because obviously every case is so different, but I think something that I like getting clients to do is asking the people closest to them to write letters to them, to tell them what it is about them that they love. Mm. And often what we find is when we do this, this um, task, what we find is that there's never, ever any mention about what they look like. It's always about what they offer. And then we can really go into, you know, like you make such a difference in these people's lives. So again, as Hope said, our physical act, physical being is probably the least interesting bit about us. You know, we're just, it's just a vessel and who we are is so much more important. 
So that's one thing we can do. And I think it's also a good way of sometimes bringing up a conversation. So if you are worried about somebody and you've noticed that they've been isolating themselves, they're not coming out for as much as they used to, you know, it's sometimes worth having that conversation. Are you okay? Is everything all right? I've noticed you're not coming out of coffee anymore. Or you're not coming out for dinner when we all go out. You know, is, is everything all right at home? Um, and you can also really miss the laughter you used to bring to the conversation or, you know, when you did this, or do you remember we used to go and like, it's reminding them of how they used to be because the problem with an eating disorder mindset is that it becomes very insular and introspective and will basically be very negative in the narrative. So it will just keep saying constantly that, you know, you're only good enough if you do this or you're only going to, you know, if you do what they're saying, then everything's going to fall apart. Like it's got this, this really, like I said, this very deceptive aspect of it. And it's, it's the bit that, as people trying to help people with eating disorders, it's the hardest bit to support people with. Mm -hmm. So, so there, like, there's some things you could do. I think always trying to get medical help. And I know Hope and I have both said it's not always easy and, you know, it's not always, you don't always get um, the, the advice or the support that you expect. But what I would say is please don't give up. You have to keep going back. You have to keep going back. Like even with the people we work with, we still need medical intervention. We still get them to go back to their GPs. We will write letters, obviously, but actually it's about them going back again and again and again and arming them with the information that they need to because, say, you know, what, this, this is what I need. Because Hope, you said, you know, at the beginning of this recording that you probably didn't really face up to the fact that you had an eating disorder until you were fully admitted right so how do people persuade you to get that help and what is your advice for people who are worried about somebody who won't listen and isn't receptive to that help yeah I, I feel like that's the million dollar question it's one that yeah I think I get asked on probably a day-to-day -day basis particularly at the moment oh. <laughs> um, yeah. I think I think the first thing is to remember that I do think that and I hate to say this but I think for some people they have to get that kind of intensive treatment and unless they get that intensive treatment, they might not accept that anything's the matter. And I think one of the things that makes it so difficult with eating disorders is they're so competitive mm. that if you maybe aren't underweight or you don't fit into kind of like that typical kind of classic mold that maybe we see on the TV and things like that, then I think people often don't feel like they're sick enough. They don't feel like they're deserving of the support. And that's something that I do hear an awful lot that people just, yeah, they're just like, what's the point? Um, but I think for me, like you can get in there, I think early if, if possible. And I think part of it is giving that person that space to really communicate, giving them that space, I think, to understand the eating disorder, understand why they're doing that. I think something that helped me when I was in on that road to recovery already, so obviously I had was in treatment, but was kind of writing down all of the negative things about the eating disorder, um, kind of focusing loads on that. And then also writing then kind of all the positives that maybe recovery would bring. So it was like, the positives would be like, I could go out with my friends for dinner. I'd have more energy to do things. Like I wasn't going to constantly be thinking about food. And actually then the more I started to kind of recover, actually the more I began to see a lot of that stuff kind of outplay as well. I think for some people who have body image kind of issues and whether their body image is distorted and wrapped up with the eating disorder, the thing that really helped me was an exercise we did in treatment where, um, we did these kind of life-size versions of ourselves where we drew what we thought we looked like. And then the nurses kind of traced around us 
And I think for me, having that concrete evidence that actually my body image was really distorted was, again, something that really, really helped. Mm. Maybe look at what they're doing a little bit more. I think that's really difficult as well nowadays, particularly because we live in a society where we've normalised eating disorder culture and loads of people have a kind of quite a dysfunctional relationship with food. And so then you start to question actually what I'm doing is normal. Is this okay? But I think in some situations, actually, that kind of educational factor and I think particularly if you get in there very early, actually you can be educating someone on actually this is what a proper diet is, this is what you should be eating and kind of getting rid of a lot of the myths and the misconceptions around calorie counting and calorie labelling and kind of all of the mixed government messaging as well. Yeah, that's so true. Is there anything you shouldn't say? Um, <laughs> don't be accusational mm. because that is the worst thing you can do. And I think you you need to, like I said, you need to rethink about the language that you use. So it's it has to be, as Hope said, we want to create a really safe space. And even in our clinic, that's the whole point, is to create that very safe space to allow someone to be able to talk about what is going on for them. Yeah. So often the scenario can be more important rather than what you say. So, you know, walking side by side, they always say is a lot easier because you're not having to make eye contact. Or actually, if you are a parent and you want to have a conversation with your child then driving like to school and stuff can also sometimes be a good place or driving back from school can sometimes be a good place but I think the other thing is is that don't push it you know it as particularly I think when you are very close to the person you will want this tendency to make them get it mm. you want them to get help you will want them to really believe that there is more to life than this and and that can often mean that you you come across in quite strong and you sort of you keep pushing you keep pushing you keep pushing and I think maybe it's more around if they can acknowledge there is a problem which is the first step if they can go yeah I'm really struggling you know I really do need some help then it's looking at what can you do in that immediate like are there some little goals you can set yourselves that you can help that person with like if, if it's a friend you're supporting is it that you say like, why don't we meet for a coffee every week at the same time, which gives them that structure. And all you're doing is creating that space. You're not saying they have to do anything. You're not saying they have to eat anything. You're just like, let's go and have a coffee. They can have a coffee, they can have a tea, something that they feel safe with. But hopefully over the course of time, you then might encourage them to have something different or, you know, change it up or, or you know, or, or get them to understand that actually once in a while if you have a hot chocolate or you have a latte it's not going to affect them in that immediate the problem with the eating sort of brain is it's very much if I do that x is going to happen and we know I mean one of the things that's really fascinating about eating disorder science is that even as scientists in this field we still don't really know how to give accurate and absolute we can't say you need to eat x amount in order to allow x amount to happen we mm. just can't do it it's impossible because everybody's body is so different everybody's physiology is so different and food affects us all in different ways so it's really hard you know to, to to kind of get over that aspect of it so i think the language you use the space you create all these things are really really important what are the treatments i feel like there's so much to say about the treatments and you've both hinted at that already but but where do you start you go to your gp and and then what hope yeah so yeah i yeah go to your gp um i always suggest kind of going with a list kind of like a bullet point list of like actually i've been feeling like this for a while um this has been going on this is my behaviors around the food 
um, what support can you give me or what support is there? Can you put a referral in place for me? Um, mm. I think it's also really important when you go to your GP again to get your bloods done um, as well. So making sure you get like the full blood count um, really talks a lot about hormones. Again, it's kind of emphasizing getting all your hormones checked, things like that too. I'd say at the moment, probably... I don't know, 75, 80% of the time, someone will go to their GP and will probably be told they're not sick enough, there's not support available, um, or they might get put on a massive waiting list, um, which is, I think, the hardest thing at the moment because people really need that support and it's just not out there. But if you are lucky enough um, to get that treatment, then you kind of go for a first appointment with a clinician, you kind of run through your history, and then they will then work out kind of, again, what pathway is they're going to put you on. So that could be weekly therapy, it could be monthly therapy, um, it could be just kind of physically monitoring yourself as well. Um, I think in all situations, when you have an eating disorder and you reach out for support, you're often kind of wrapped with a lot of guilt afterwards. And there's often a lot of shame wrapped up in that kind of also the behaviors and reaching out for support. So I think if possible, and you've got someone that you trust, actually to have someone, maybe a friend or a family member that you can maybe go for a walk with afterwards or get a cup of tea with and kind of just have that distraction in place so that you don't start to, I guess, overthink why you've done it, what's going on, like, and that sort of thing. And I think, again, if you get turned away from services, I guess just that reminder that actually that is so wrong on so many levels and it's nothing to do with you. Like you deserve the treatment and you deserve the support. Um, and as Rini said a moment ago, like in that situation, it is going back, like keeping pushing for that support. Like I think I'm I'm lucky in that sense because I'm quite good at advocating for myself and I know not everyone will be like that. But I think sometimes you have to get to that space where you kind of lose all like inhibition and just like, right, I just, I deserve this support. I'm not going to let myself get more unwell. I'm going to go and keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And in some situations, I, I do think kind of writing to a local MP or someone like that, kind of pressing on a lot of that urgency, I think is key. Rini, if you're the relative of somebody who's not like Hope and who isn't prepared to admit that they have a problem and you know, it is not kind of willing to receive treatment and you're being hit with these delays from the NHS or, you know, rejections from the NHS, then where do you turn? If you've got to advocate for somebody they, and they won't do it for themselves, then what physically can you actually do? So there's some really good resources out there. And I think that's the way you have to go. Like we've got amazing charities working in this field. So, you know, um, there's, there's loads of them and I'll probably miss some, but, you know, we've got there's seed, there's um, feast, there's beet, there's obviously anorexia and bulimia care. There's there's so many that you know that are doing a really great job. Like feast in particular, doing a great job of supporting carers. Like they're brilliant and they have an absolute. They have a program that they support and they offer a support group and all sorts of things and even one to one support. So it's 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 excellent. Obviously, beet and anorexia and bulimia care have a helpline, so the individual can be encouraged to try and speak to somebody on the helpline, but equally, you know, parents and carers can, can access that as well. I'd like to think that um, my Instagram platform um, is a good resource because I know we get messages all the time saying from people, I couldn't get help, but I kept reading your information and it's really helped me and I've been able to maintain my weight, if not even, you know, restore themselves and, and they got mm -hmm. fed up of waiting, but they've been able to do it. So there's a lot of information on my platform, but also we have, um, a podcast called the train brave podcast which again we've got a lot of information on there 
but there's loads of other podcasts like obviously we're doing something like this is is great there's lots of other resources i think that's something that is brilliant right now is that there is a lot of resources obviously hope's campaign dump the scales there's lots of information um, around that and how to help yourself and how to write to your gp i mean hope's got like templates of letters and, and all sorts of things to help people to to get the support they need one of my concerns big concerns about the fact that there aren't enough services right now, but there are also a lot of people setting themselves up as eating disorder support mm -hmm. and they don't have the qualifications and they don't have the credentials. And often they've had their own experience. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Obviously both Hope and I are sat here with our own experience, mm -hmm. but often they haven't had enough time to separate themselves from their own experience to then be able to support somebody through that and that is a massive concern for me and and also if you don't have aspects of psychological training then it can be very difficult to know how to challenge somebody's thought processes you know like hope was saying about disrupting your thinking and you know another another way of doing that is alternative thinking but it's being able to have the expertise in knowing how to show somebody how to do that mm -hmm. so i think one thing I would be mindful of is as desperate as people are, and I know people are desperate because it's so hard to get support out there. Please be careful about where you do get resources from. And, you know, there are also some really good private clinics. And I, again, appreciate that they're not, they're not possible for everybody. You know, only the financially privileged can actually afford them. And, and that annoys me, but it is what it is and it's the same in our clinic and one of the things that we do have is that we do have we don't advertise it that much but I'm also going to say it now we do have like a scholarship program so that for some people if they are really stuck then we will support them so there is help out there there is lots of help out there but it's, it's finding it and I think when you're in the midst of an eating disorder when you're exhausted and even as a parent or a carer when you're absolutely at your wits end because you're desperate for some support it can be really hard to know where to get it from so hopefully we've been able to pinpoint hope did i forget anybody did i forget any resources and um, the other, other person i i really love or group i really love is first steps yeah um so they do a lot of like early intervention stuff um and they do a lot of modules online and stuff as well um but i do i kind of yeah echo everything really said like i think there is some really great support out there but it is about kind of looking and taking the time to do the research as well um and just being, I guess, yeah, just being mindful of also the kind of other types of messages that you're seeing out there with diet and fitness advice as well. How do you avoid a relapse? I think if you get the right support, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to criticise support, but I think if you can understand the reason, the purpose of your eating disorder, then you become, you know, the way in which we work in our clinic is to help individuals become very self-aware. So we're not changing someone's personality. We can't change people. We can't change the fact that they maybe have a perfectionist mindset or that they are a highly anxious individual or they have got obsessive tendencies. Like that's who we are. You know, I, I tick all those boxes. That's who we are. But it's having that self-awareness, being able to see that because then you'll know potentially what situations may be problematic. And then, you know, the eating disorder mindset is very much, I need to control that. But actually, instead of being thinking about controlling it all the time, it's actually about being prepared. How do I prepare myself for these situations? So, you know, if there are certain family situations where you know it's more difficult because they 
always are critical. And that is one of those things that will feed into that mindset of I'm not good enough. And then that will potentially cause you to react and go back down that road. Then it's being able to remind yourself that that is their opinion. That is their aspect. And actually, you know that you're going into that situation. You can't change them. We can't control other people. I think that's one of the big things we teach people is that you cannot control anybody else. You cannot influence how anybody else is going to respond to you or think about you in any way. It doesn't matter whether you eat or not eat. It's not going to have that effect. And so actually by giving people that information, realizing what their weak spots are and then providing them with the tools, you would hope that you can prevent relapse. But I think one of the things about relapse, again, is that self-awareness. We've had a few emails recently this week, and I guess because of the time of the year and everything else, and, and it's interesting, the email, and they're like, I'm noticing this, da, 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 and then they go, actually, by offloading an email to you, I've realized what I need to go and do. And it's great because you've, we've obviously taught them enough mm. that they needed to kind of go, oh, it's because I'm stressed about work, or it's because I'm stressed about all the social activities around Christmas, or, it's because we still don't know whether we're going to have Christmas or not have Christmas. You know, all these different things mm. that potentially can be very difficult for individuals who need to know, who need that predictability. But I think, again, something to remember is that nothing in life is certain and nothing in life is predictable and humans are not predictable. So trying to create all these rules and 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 kind of sort of, I always used to describe it as... Uh, it felt like I was creating lots of lines and sharp edges around me. Like I was kind of putting myself in a little box that just kept me safe. But the reality was it wasn't, but that's how it, how it felt. So relapse, it is, a, it is a thing. We know it happens. I think it's I think something like 30% of people will relapse, but it doesn't mean that you're going to go all the way back down again. And I think the idea that 30% relapse, that means that 70% of the people go on to lead eating disorder-free lives which is fantastic. I mean, I, 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 I'm with hope. I 100% know, it's not even believe, I know from my own experience and from the people I've worked with, you can be free of an eating disorder, 100%. It's not easy. It's not a, it's not a linear journey in any form or manner, but it is absolutely possible. But you may need different types of support along the way. That's, that, I think that's the key thing. Can I ask you both about motherhood and eating disorders. If you have had an eating disorder as a woman, how do you prevent that mentality, those tendencies, those issues being projected onto your children? <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I reckon we could probably do a whole podcast just on this topic, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, how do you, how do you imbue your children with a healthy perspective I... on food if you don't have one yourself? So I think firstly, it's really important to remind parents in general that you can only ever do your best because no matter how much you try to protect your children and you can be the most supportive parent in the world and the most reassuring parent in the world and you can help your child with anxieties, what we're finding, and I think this is why we're seeing such a big rise, is that it's actually very difficult to protect your children from all that they are exposed to. And all the sense of that kind of unworthiness that we discussed earlier. So I think I really wanna put that out there because I think a lot of parents will be amazing and they may still end up with children with eating disorders. And I don't want them to think it's their fault because it's not. 
we, so we already explained it's very complicated and it's multifactorial. But I think some of the key things that you can do are always trying to make sure that there's no value to achievement. There's no value to food. There's no value to body image. I think that the problem is that because of the society we live in, we actually create a lot of individuals with this perfectionist mindset. And this perfectionist mindset is very much a way of trying to seek approval. So if you are a youngster that is potentially at risk, is vulnerable, because if you, if you are a parent, then there's that genetic link as well. So if you are a youngster that is at risk, then there is an element of that you may well struggle with anxiety and self-esteem issues, regardless of your upbringing. It doesn't matter how secure your upbringing has been. And I think if you're then trying to find a way of trying to attain your worth, and there's a lot of like, oh, well, you know, um, you did so brilliantly in your hockey match. And then that becomes the thing. All oh, right, I'm really good at hockey. That's how I got approval. That's what I now need to focus on. That's how I get. I think for me, it's about trying to remove that element of needing to achieve, but learning to be accepting of selves regardless and also teaching them how to deal with failure, right? Like that's a massive thing that we don't teach our youngsters is that we all fail we all make mistakes, but that doesn't mean that you're the problem, that, that there's an element of, you know, actually, we learn from that, mm. we learn from our mistakes. And I think the other thing that is so important is helping children to realise that you can't control aspects of your life. It's not about what you do, it's about what makes you shine. Hopefully, a positive of the pandemic has been that there's a younger generation who are more adaptable and more aware at least of the kind of unpredictability of life. So. A I lot really, of us have learned that now yeah. at, a, at an age that's harder to swallow. I really, really hope so. Mm. I really hope we have been able to, they've been able to see that. I really hope that we can take something positive from this pandemic. Yeah. And that, that that younger generation can go, you know, that was really rubbish. Yeah, but, but this is what I just, yeah, exactly. We survived it. And now we're really grateful for the fact that we can go out with our friends again and we can go to school. Hope, can we end with some offer of, well, hope? Can you, <laughs> what words, what words of advice can you give to somebody who is struggling themselves and feels in a really dark place and just needs a bit of encouragement? I would probably say that whilst at the moment the eating disorder is probably making you feel great in the short term, to actually look at the bigger picture stuff and to realize that a lot of the time in recovery, it feels absolutely terrifying. And there's so much fear and uncertainty and you have to, you have to find a way to actually reframe what you want your future to look like. I always think for me, it's like, what do, do I want to have a future where I'm kind of obsessing over food or exercise or what I'm eating on a day-to-day -day basis and getting anxious about going out with my friends? Or do I want to have a future that can be like totally, totally free of this? So I say, set yourself some kind of goals, write down your belief systems, work out where some of that information has actually come from, and then try and find a way to just stay really, really motivated and that might be actually writing down your motivations, things like you want to go for dinner with your friends, you want to go to uni maybe, or I know a big one for me when I was unwell was I really want to have children one day. And I think it was those driving factors that actually kind of pushed me to that better space. Yeah, 
I think that's that's such good advice. Thank you both so much. It's such a big topic. It's so hard to condense into into a podcast, but uh, I think you've both given such a helpful insight and and hopefully have been a real help um, to listeners. So thank you both so much. Do you both just want to give um, a little shout out to to your resources, to where you work, to where people can find you, Rini? So um, we have a clinic and all the information is on renemcgregor.com, which is nice and easy. And the um, Instagram tag handle is r underscore McGregor. And Hope? Uh, yeah, probably the best place um, is just Instagram. So just my name, Hope Virgo with an underscore. Um, and then if you want to look at the campaign, which would be amazing, um, it's on change.org. And if you just type in dump the scales, it should hopefully come up. Thank you both so much for talking to me today about this incredibly important topic. If you have been affected by anything we've discussed or need additional support, then please do look at Feast, First Steps ED, The Hub of Hope or ABC, or you can check out the ladies online too. For any feedback at all, please do email podcast at We love hearing from you. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.